you guys it is episode 206 of rank and review and it is the second last bunker episode i watched 31 movies read three books and watched the entire first season which is over 30 episodes of the twilight zone and i tried to you know keep notes and try to amass this material so that i'd have a good backlog so i can help get more episodes out there in the age of covid where i've been finding recording harder and harder to do and for my dear listeners who have been with me through these episodes some of these episodes have been hard-fought battles either i'm working against the clock or with my first episode in particular i had a batch of really tough movies but I really want to thank you guys for sticking it out with me. And as part of my gratitude, I'm going to offer you a really solid bunker episode, I think. I don't have a lot of, uh, you know, audio issues this one time. There's no echo. There's one interview with my dear friend Scott Lehman over the phone that sounds like it's over the phone, but I think it's very easy on the ears. <laughs> um, I don't feel as rushed, and I think I was just getting more used to talking to myself by the time this episode came out, so... I'm not apologizing for this episode the way I feel like. I didn't want the Bunker episodes to feel like filler, and I admit that a couple of them might feel like filler. This episode, I don't think, should feel like filler. <laughs> um, we got three retro horror movies that, you know, somehow slipped through the net of the culture, or that I've just been meaning to get my eyes to and that somehow failed. And then we've got three more modern pieces that either because of the digital age or because of international distribution or mystery to me, I can't seem to easily get my hands to it in Canada. But I did find a way to watch them all in time to record this Bunker episode. So, uh, yes, we got six movie reviews and then we have a, a book report on Devolution by Max Brooks, the author of World War Z. And um, it's, I think, going to be a fun episode. I hope you enjoy it. As usual, you can check out my website at rankandreview.ca. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at .ca. <laughs> and then to uh, email me, it's rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. I drop every other Wednesday, and if you're looking for something else to put in your ears, my friend Jason Debray has a podcast called The Shelf Shedding Movie Show, and uh, I think you should give that a go. And all that behind us, let's get into the second to last bunker episode. Horror plays hard to get. Who is Mr. Frost? No one has been able to turn up the slightest clue regarding Frost's identity. 
There's no official trace of him anywhere. What has he done? And in two years, he hasn't uttered a single word? Frost is not mentally ill, Dr. Day. He has no place in your hospital. What does he want with us? So, in fact, who are you? I'm the Gaga man. Boo. <laughs> he spoke to you. I'm not afraid of him. It used to be simple. Good on one hand, evil on the other. There was a struggle. But then you came along, the scientists, the geniuses. What do you want from us? What do you want from me? As somebody who has spent a lot of time on stage and actually doing some acting in the real world, not just in my imaginations, um, at least once upon a time, I am sort of fascinated with roles that have been played by many different actors. And when we're talking about something as big and impossible to fully interpret as the visage of the devil, as this source of all of the evil in the world, as the source of all temptation in the world, and also with that little hint of the rebellion, you know, this is a fallen angel, this is someone who not only had the knowledge that God was real and created him, but chose to rebel against it, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways to play it. Is he glad to be where he is, or is he unhappy to be where he is? Is it a male? Is it a female? Does it consider these types of things? Does it consider these types of questions when it's sitting down across from someone? When it's trying to make a deal, buy a soul, or just sow chaos into the world? And, you know, when you're playing a villain or you're playing, you know, somebody who's motivated to do bad, a lot of actors will take the treatise that, like, you got to find a way to like your character. you got to get behind his eyes and behind his motivations and let him, at least, or her, justify to themselves why they're doing what they're doing. And for most villains, that'll work for you. But with Satan, with the devil, it's interesting. So whenever an actor who I respect plays the role of the devil, I kind of pay attention. And there's been no shortage of them. Um, Vincent Price, Tim Curry... Robert De Niro, Jack Nicholson, um, Viggo Mortensen, Max von Sydow, Al Pacino, and actually one that I quite like that uh, maybe gets not shouted out as much is Tom Waits. All of these people have played the devil to varying degrees of success. And when it comes up in conversation, you know, people will often mention how De Niro made his devil act and look a lot like Martin Scorsese or laugh at how over-the-top Al Pacino's you know, just Pacinoed the shit out of it. But if someone was to ask me who I thought did the most interesting take on The Devil, my answer would be Jeff Goldblum. And the movie would be Mr. Frost from 1990. It's a British film. Uh, I believe it's a British film. It's directed by a French person, though, named uh, Philippe Setbon. Setbon. Um, and it is about a man named Mr. Frost who was arrested by police for killing 24 people. And uh, he basically, once the police show up, doesn't do anything to hide his crimes. He tells them where they're buried and is very polite and concise and calm about it. Now, I said earlier, like talking with regards to Al Pacino, how, you know, he Al pacino the hell out of his, you know, <laughs> his version of the devil. Jeff Goldblum does not vanish here. He's still full of all the same ticks and pauses 
and sort of furrowed brows and, and big eyes that he always puts into his performance. But I see him thinking, I see him calculating, and I see the way he looks at everyone around them and the way he examines them. This is a devil who isn't suffering, who doesn't hate where he's at, but who really, really resents humanity for not taking him seriously. We are half-hearted. We're in our heads. We believe in nothing. We think nowadays that we don't need Mr. Frost, but where's our enthusiasm? There's no passion. There's no life. These words come out of Jeff Goldblum's mouth in one of many, many confrontational scenes between he and Kathy Baker, who's a psychiatrist at the Institute where he's wound up, who's trying to get him to speak, get him to explain why he's done the things he do, he's doing. He's not interested in psychology. No, Mr. Frost wants to be believed in. And he sets out to torture this psychiatrist and to convince her that despite everything she's learned, despite everything she's dedicated her life to, that scary supernatural things do exist. The boogeyman exists. Bigfoot exists. The devil exists. And the devil's kind of pissed off that he's not being taken more seriously. So you still have a lot of room here for sort of satire, some weird sort of dark humor. And you still get, if you're a fan of Jeff Goldblum, which I think everybody knows I am, you get a lot of Jeff Goldblum doing his Jeff Goldblum thing. But I think the movie works. I think it gets to you. And uh, this is 1990. This is right around the time where uh, Sansa Lambs was coming out. And uh, I would actually compare the confrontation between... Jeff Goldblum and Kathy Baker and Mr. Frost to the confrontation that happens in Silence of the Lambs between Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins. Now, those are pretty, that's a pretty large mantle to sort of compare this small, underseen British or European film, but it's how I feel. I also want to talk about Alan Bates, who's also a supporting role as this guy Deitweiler, who sees who Mr. Frost is right away and is again a victim of him and who tries to help Kathy Baker but also convince her that yeah this guy is indeed on the level. Actually Alan Bates and Kathy Baker I think have something in common like consistently working actors for a long time. Well Alan Bates has kind of slowed down since he passed away but while he was active he was very active in a lot of films and Kathy Baker still doing a lot of it you know, a lot of work and consistently good in the stuff she's in. But neither of them ever really popped. Um, and this was before. I mean, Jeff Goldblum was always Jeff Goldblum and The Fly had happened. But I don't think he was the draw that he is even today, you know, at the time that this was released. But it's interesting. Baker and Bates just always solid, never fully appreciated. And they both get to work off of each other in this film. And as usual, they do a fine job of it. But to be fair, it is Jeff Goldblum's show. There's also a very brief show uh, scene with Vincent Schiavelli, who's an actor who I've always been impressed with. He usually does small roles in films, and uh, whenever I see him, I'm like, hey, Vincent, there you are, buddy. <laughs> and it's just one of the many things about the movie that I, I enjoy. You took a few years and undid centuries of effort. It used to be simple, good on one hand, evil on the other. It was a struggle. We had a game, and yes, we made it up. But then you came along, the scientists, the geniuses. You know, you 
you couldn't care less about the human spirit. You're in your heads. You're half-hearted. You believe in nothing. There was a time when people sold their souls to me for, for youth or wealth. Well, these days I know you think you don't need Mr. Frost, but where's your enthusiasm? There's no passion. There's no life. So what do you want from us? What do you want from me? I want, I must reveal to the world your impotence in the presence of the age-old power of the wild side. This is all very general, Mr. Frost. No, 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 it's very specific, Dr. Day. Tell me, in your opinion, what would be that, uh, what's the worst thing that a psychiatrist in the second millennium could do to one of her patients? What would be that one irreparable act? The setting of the institution, too, with all of these, you know, unfortunate souls suffering. Uh, some of them looking to Mr. Frost at some sort of awe. Some of them intuitively frightened of him. And what a playground this is for him. You know, these people are already damaged and it would be so easy for him to push them over the edge. So he clocks the patients that are, you know, Kathy Baker's favorite and he messes with them and he causes terrible things to happen. And whenever she thinks she's made a point against him, he throws it right back in her face with that smugness, that Jeff Goldblum smugness that becomes increasingly frustrating to her, but kind of enjoyable from the audience standpoint. Like, she keeps on thinking that she's going to be able to convince him of something or score some points against him. And the longer she continues to lose this debate, this competition, this whatever it is between them, the more unharried that she becomes. All of this would be interesting enough. And like the idea of, you know, faith versus science, you know, there's not a lot new here, but there's a brilliant twist that happens towards the two thirds of the way through the movie. And I really do think it's the moment where the Kathy Baker character convinces herself that no matter what she's been able to put aside or to tell herself or to dismiss in the past, this is the thing that convinces her. And that thing is when she gets a panicked phone call from her brother, who is disabled, who'd spent most of his life in a wheelchair. And when she goes to see him, he gets out of the chair. And he's amazed, and he's happy, and he doesn't know how to react. And she's terrified. Mr. Frost did something wonderful for her and her brother. And that was the thing that convinced her that not only was he on the level, but that he needed to be stopped. That he needed not just to be stopped, but to be stopped by his own psychiatrist. And this, of course, is the end game. This is what Mr. Frost wanted the whole time. By being destroyed by a figurehead of science, a well-placed psychiatrist who lived her life in the world that was real, for her to so completely buy into the, the reality of Satan that she would literally pull the trigger on him is a victory. And it works, you know? A lot of the times, you know, when the bad guys win or when the devil wins, it's like in The Omen or Rosemary's Baby or anything like that. But it's sort of like this surprise thing, this gambit, you know? Yeah, maybe Mr. Frost was playing a rigged game and maybe there was no way she could win this game. But he feels the stakes to it. Like, there's something there for him. He wants recognition. And in his mind, he's going to get this recognition. And he gets it, and we're not exactly happy for him. And, and, you know, 
whatever happens after the credits roll to Kathy Baker, she's no longer going to be a psychiatrist, whether or not she joins her patients, whether or not she's really asked to pay the price for what's going on here. We don't know. It's all left for us to wrestle with. But so few films will leave me thinking about it after I walk away from it. And Mr. Frost I saw on Super Channel in like 1991 or 92, and it has never left my mind. Is part of it because I'm a big Goldblum fan? Maybe. Is part of it, like I said in the introduction, my sort of fascination with people playing these big ideals of figures and how they're going to interpret such an idea? Absolutely. All of that is true. But I think, front to back, start to finish, Mr. Frost works. And it's lost. Like, I guess it airs occasionally on TV in, in, in England and stuff like that, but a lot of people who I talk to just have no idea what this movie is. Uh, it's not available in any physical medium other than VHS that I'm aware of. And if it's on a streaming service, I don't know where it is. It's an unsung horror thriller. I don't know if I would say masterpiece. It is a little bit cheaply made. Some of the performances are more convincing than others. But the central conceit, the script, and the execution by the leads make it more than worthwhile. And especially in this day and age where Jeff Goldblum seems to be like more popular than ever and he has his own, he has his own documentary series, why not, you know, re-release this? Get this out there. Let people enjoy and find Mr. Frost or let them disagree with me. I mean, I think a lot of people would be curious enough just by Jeff Goldblum playing the devil to check it out. So I, I invite you to seek it out and wish you luck seeking it out. I have a VHS copy of it. And uh, that's what I mean by lost movies. And that's what's the double-edged sword of this digital age that we're finding ourselves in. For all of the new movies we get access to, there are so many we have lost. Let's try not to make Mr. Frost one. If someone was to ask me if I was claustrophobic, I would say, yeah, maybe a little bit. But if, uh, if, if I was to wonder, like, am I more stressed out, like, by big spaces or little spaces, it's a tricky one for me. I would say I'm less agoraphobic and more claustrophobic. And yet, sometimes intimidatingly large vistas can be strange. Like, it sounds weird to say, you know, me living in the middle of the Great Plains, but, uh... Yes, there are things that can be too big, and there are definitely things that can be too small. But I'm not agoraphobic. I think the word would be, I hope this is right, thalassophobic, which is a fear of the ocean. I don't like the idea of, you know, floating on this 
limitless source of water full of things that I don't understand and that will probably eat me. The water itself is a danger. And uh, unless you absolutely know what you're doing in a, and you're in a very seafaring, you know, well put together boat or ship, you know, you are surrounded by death. So I've never really understood people who really enjoyed the ocean, who live, spent their life at sea. You know, if it's your job, that's one thing. But I don't understand people who love the ocean because I, I find it troubling. And here we find ourselves on the edge of a new frontier of space exploration. And for us people, us thalassophobics, if that is the right word, we move on to astrophobic. And I can only imagine that my terror of the ocean and its vastness and its unknown quantities would be magnified by a millennium <laughs> in outer space. Who's to say a micro-sized, you know, little piece of stone wouldn't fly right through your ship and destroy everything, your life support, you know? <clears throat> the radiation in space. You know, it's not even just the lack of oxygen and, and the water's willingness to drown you. Like, space is frozen and it's radiated and apparently it smells like burning meat. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the vastness of it is hilarious. And as far as we know, there's nothing like us out there or anything that is alive out there that we can see or understand would likely be microscopic to our eyes. And then there's these thoughts like all of our technology as we move forward seems to be getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So we start wondering maybe the reason that we haven't seen you know, our alien neighbors is because their tech evolved similar to ours. And for all we know, they're already here and they've been watching us for a long time. <laughs> they just don't want to be seen. We want to see them. They don't want to see us. This unending mystery that is space travel, that is outer space and you know, what would that day be like? That seemingly necessary, maybe inevitable day when it's confirmed we are not alone. When that really does come to be that like, there are other things in the world. We are not the center of the universe. We are not the beginning of the universe. We are not the start. We are not the finish. We are just a piece of it. And what will that do to the human ego? What will that do to things like religion? What would the fallout be? Horror and science fiction, I think, are probably the purest blend of genres we've gotten since, like, I don't know, horror and comedy. <laughs> but uh, this is the new frontier. The, the, what used to be, you know, these stories of pirates and ocean-faring vessels and life at sea, you know, the new age will now be that of outer space. And we're at the very terrifying beginning where there is just so much more that we don't know than what we do. Arguably horror science fiction was perfected in the late 70s with Ridley Scott's Alien, but there's been a lot of good ones. And I wanna talk about a 2020 film from Russia called Sputnik. <laughs>
Now, I know I'm not allowed to say anything good about Russia right now because that damn Putin is causing all sorts of problems in the world, but I don't think we should punish their film industry for it. Um, it also got kind of uh, demolished distribution sort of payout because of COVID. So it's one that kind of got lost in the shuffle. And because it's an international, you know, release, it's hard to get your hands on a copy. I think it is available now in some streaming sites. But when I was doing my bunker project in, in October of 2020, the movie was being talked about, but it was a really hard movie to actually put in front of you and see. I would say the closest ancillary to Sputnik was a recent science fiction movie called Life, starring Jake Gyllenhaal. The creature in both of those movies look like they could be from the same planet. Maybe not the same species of alien, but they look like they're made of the same stuff. So to add to our, our education on, on different phobias, on top of fear of space and you know, fear of vastness, I think the other thing that this movie plays on is something called carcerophobic, or carcerophobia, which is fear of incarceration. And that's the really interesting thing, too, that about... Sputnik that I really appreciate, it kind of enters into this little mini subgenre of science fiction horror that we've been getting a lot of lately. Uh, Monster in a Box thrillers like, like Splice or um, Morgan or uh, Ex Machina. Like uh, we have this new creature or this created creature, but we don't know what it's capable of. So it's being studied and it's being, you know, tested. But by nature of being studied and tested, it's also kind of being imprisoned. In Sputnik, it's added this extra layer of things that our imprisoned astronaut, um, Constantin, uh, the creature actually is symbiotic with him. It is inside of him. It erupts from his throat, usually when he's sleeping, to do its business. But, unfortunately, it's not a cuddly, friendly E.T. It does kill people. I think the thing that gives Sputnik its real bite is that it's actually uh, also on top of being a, a science fiction horror. It's kind of a historical set thriller. It's a, it's, it's a history piece. It's happening during the Cold War. These astronauts encounter something before re-entry and they crash. One of the astronauts is killed and another one of the astronauts is forever mobilized and the third astronaut, Constantine, has this thing in him. and. It's interesting. They send this troubled psychiatrist, and you'd wonder why they would pick such a controversial woman. She was almost, you know, about to lose her job, and they select her to do this super secret study with, with Constantin. So Titania, who's our psychiatrist, is trying to get to know this guy and both figure him out and figure out what the powers that be want from him. So that's where things start to get a little bit familiar, like... Yeah, we have seen Monster in a Box thrillers, and uh, Constantine seems like he's an innocent victim, but a lot of bodies are piling up to the left and right. And of course, what are the motivations of the powers that be? Do they have everyone's best interests at heart? No, not in a sci-fi horror movie. Almost never, right? <laughs> so that's when things start to get familiar. But the presentation, and especially, like I said, the historic context, lends the film this weird feeling of 
like importance or historic document <laughs> and it's funny because it is pretty pulpy when you get down to it uh, it's not wall-to-wall -wall teeth and tissue but when our bug finally does erupt and we see it do its business it is forbidden for formidable and uh, a lot of people die and uh, there's of course you know our main military uh, villain uh, Samiridov, I believe was his name I'm probably saying my Russian's not ideal um, but they create this really good, hateable villain. There's lots of good reveals with him that, you know, when we finally get our payoff, the alien's not good, but this guy might almost be worse. <laughs> so there's lots of different adversaries and layers to the stakes in the movie that make it work. I think maybe the fact that it is subtitled and that it is in Russian adds that extra layer. I don't know, there's something about... Because I don't see a lot of international films, I, I, I almost put a stamp of extra importance on one that, that these ones are so well-loved that they want the world to see it. It's not just going to be for genre fans in Russia. They want to share this fit picture with the world. And usually you can get really interesting films that way, and this is no exception. Much like uh, I talked about Nightwatch and Daywatch, uh, these other Russian films, or, or maybe those were German. I hope I'm not wrong about that. Uh, sometimes people lower their expectations as far as production value for a foreign film. And sometimes you're right to, but in this case you shouldn't be. This looks as good and, as, and it is as accessible as any science fiction thriller you're going to see. It just happens to have subtitles. And again, I much prefer the subtitles to the dubbed, but here's the thing that I could put out there. Since it's weird and awkward anyway for me to do the dub, how about you dub everybody with fun Russian accents? I don't know. Maybe that's just for your host and random Canadian. Because another thing that you may not know about me, I really love accents. I love accents. English, Russian, accents do it for me. So, yeah, um, Sputnik is definitely worth any genre person's uh, attention. Hopefully by the time this is hitting your ears, it's more available than it was when I recorded this. But sometimes horror plays hard to get because we feel like we don't need this piece of horror. Like, maybe if you read the box, an alien being studied, Russian astronauts, maybe this isn't going to jump out for you. I'm here for you guys, though. I am your friend. I am your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, here to tell you that Sputnik is worth checking out. If you liked life, if you like movies like Morgan, this is right in that niche. Welcome to Garth Man. In order to be a member of Alpha Sigma Rho, one has to do what? To stay in Garth Manor one night. And why is this night so special? Because 12 years ago, Raymond Garth murdered his family here and then committed suicide. And when the police arrived, they discovered a note written by Raymond Garth describing the entire gruesome act. But strangely, they only discovered three dead bodies. Andrew is still believed by some to be living somewhere within this house. Hey, let's party! Quaaludes and Jack Daniels. Oh my gosh. This is one radical chick. <laughs> All right! Now the fun begins. <laughs> Robin Hood to the rescue! <laughs> <laughs>
Hell Knight is sort of a classic form, like, students in trouble kind of horror slasher thriller. Uh, it's got a lot of things going on. There might be a ghost story in here somewhere. There might be a subterfuge in here. But, like, basically, it's the classic pretty people go someplace they shouldn't, and they get whittled down. Uh, it's directed by Tom DeSimone, and it stars the hot-at-the-time Linda Blair. Um, a bunch of uh, college pledges are asked to spend a night locked in this gated, deserted mansion, which has a, of course, sinister history. They have to stay the night there as sort of a, a, a pledge, and that way they can, you know, be part of the cool clubs in the university. Um so we have several things going on. We have the question of whether or not this place is actually haunted. We have a bunch of students who have planted a bunch of false scares and like sound cues and stuff like that to deliberately try to freak out the students that are being put through the this 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 game. And we have a legit huge, frightening, monstrous serial killer in the works. Um, and all of these balls are sort of going in the air. Um, I guess one of the notes that I did have about the movie is that once once it's set up and on the roll, it kind of feels like there's three different movies happening that occasionally intersect with each other. We have the story about the guys that are uh, manipulating all of these pranks and false scares and what's going on with them. And we have the story of these two couples, the two that are constantly trying to have sex and the two that are just getting getting to know each other. And then we have the one guy who manages to get out of the place and is trying to get help and bring it back. <laughs> and there's these three movies going on and they don't feel like they really belong or, or are comfortable together somehow. I guess I like each of the individual movies at points by themselves, but together there's this weird vague messiness to the proceedings. The other thing is uh, Linda Blair was really popular for a time there. And uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, they were trying like hell to make her a star. And she would do movies that like would look good on paper, would make sense. This will be a popular movie. Like you'll do, she'll do a, a disco musical because people were going to disco musicals at the time. And she'll make a sequel to The Exorcist because, well, you got to get that money. And she's showing up in a lot of horror movies as a brand name. And as much as I do yeah. think she was amazing in The Exorcist... She's a young actress, and she had a lot of help in The Exorcist. She had a makeup work offender that she had another woman supplying her voice when she was possessed a lot of the time. So she had help. And when it moved on for to seeing Linda Blair outside of The Exorcist, I think what we have is a, a you know a capable, decent actress and young woman who got thrown way in the deep end of the pool, perhaps before she was ready for it. So there's always been something a little. She's not bad. There's just something awkward or maybe a little bit off about Linda Blair for me, especially in her, some of her early performances. And I would count Hell Knight as one of those as well. So does, it basically works as a slasher. Sorry? She's fine. She's fine in this. Though. I mean, she's she's fine in this. Um, I don't think she's asked to do a whole lot of uh, you know heavy kind of acting when you're in a slasher film. I, I think she plays her, her role of the good, the nice girl pretty well she smiles a lot <laughs> yeah she screams yeah that, that's it <laughs> pretty much scream, walk around with with lots of cleavage showing and... yeah that's true i mean and like i guess she's doing the job but like i didn't feel strength from her i didn't feel like the like the the final girl kind of 
she was the final girl because she was the star of the movie, not because she had this tenacity in her, this strength or this like, I, I believed her as a survivor. She was just the necessary, you know, component of this slasher movie. But I'm sounding really dismissive. At the end of the day, uh, do the suspense scenes work and do the kill scenes work? Largely, yes, I do. And I, I think that's what most people are paying for when they, you know, are going to watch a retro slasher movie like Hell Knight. And it's also not as awkward and it's aged fairly smoothly by comparison to a lot of these kind of 80s slashers. There's still something yeah. kind of charming and innocent about it. It hasn't come completely gnarly and awful and uh, mean-spirited yet. We're still allowed I to think, have fun. I think part of that is because of the whole gothic feel of this movie. Um, with, them, with it taking place in this big Garth Manor, which is a great, great location for a horror film. It's a creepy... Uh, mansion that they have to stay in and it's the whole uh, you know that's a classic movie idea of the you have to spend one night in this haunted house and you win you know you can be in this sorority or you can win a million dollars whatever it is in that movie it's been done before and many times but uh, that's kind of the basic setup right yeah and uh, now with that they're all wearing costumes it's a costume party as well so with that it kind of gives it a period look almost and adds to that gothic feel and almost makes it a bit more timeless. It doesn't have that 80s look to it necessarily. Yeah, the costumes help that. Yeah. The film has a 1981 feeling when it starts, you know, your credit sequence and, you know, the, the party and just that whole thing. And I, I, I love that about it because 1981 feel, I get sucked in already and I, I relax because that's, that's my jam. <laughs> um, but I, I do think it was smart with them going for the, the costumes. Yeah. When, when they all look like they're from a different period, they kind of fits the mansion rather than them walking around in, you know, jeans and sweaters or whatever they would be wearing. Uh, that, I think, would make it scream a bit more 80s. So and that, that was probably a good call for them. In 1981, it would be the fashion and the music that would do the most to take us out of it. And they keep the, the score very traditional horror movie. And yeah, you're right. They don't have the crazy big 80s hair or like the hilarious fashions going on to distract you. Uh, generally speaking, I don't think it should matter what people are wearing or what they look like. I kind of have to let it go. I just sort of like, this is the way people talked at this time. This is the way people dressed at this time. And usually I can let it go, but there's something specific about certain eighties movies where it just becomes so ridiculous that it, it is hard to take seriously sometimes. Yeah. And I, what I'm, I guess what I'm just saying is I, I think the costumes were a good idea for this yeah. just to, uh, add that sort of haunted house feel to it. Um, I don't know if they mentioned, I'm not sure they mentioned why, I don't think it's Halloween, I think it was just part of the party that it was a costume party or something, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think so. And then it, uh, so the film does turn into a slasher film eventually, it takes a little bit of a while to, to get going in that direction, Yeah. but once it starts, it's actually done with some style and you know a little bit of classic, they don't linger a whole lot on the gore shots, yeah. uh, there, are some, there are some good kills that, that do occur, they're kind of that... Uh, you, for the most part, flash kind of quick edits. But, uh, exactly uh, what we would have been part. seeing in, in the Friday the 13th of the time. Like yeah. you, you just see a, a, a two-second quick shot, but it's enough that you know what happened, and you're like, ooh, grizzly. And um, uh, it's good. Speaking of uh, Friday the 13th, actually, Peter Barton, who's playing the love interest to Linda Blair in this movie, and they spend the whole movie making goo-goo eyes at each other and, and uh, you know, flirting. And she seems about ready to, uh, to give in to him before the shit finally hits the fan. He was killed. That actor was killed by Jason Voorhees in part four, I want to say, 
he was he had his head smashed into a wall in a shower. Into the shower, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess that's that's not a plus or a minus to this movie, but I, I you know, way to get killed yeah, in trivia. yeah, way to get killed in two different slasher movies. And he was his character was the closest they came to like a surprise death for me. Like uh, I thought maybe the two of them might get out of this one since they'd spent so much time building the relationship between the two of them. But no, he gets thrown out a window. <laughs> yeah, it was looking that way. Um, one, one thing that I will, maybe a small complaint, if, if you are negative, maybe, is uh, there are lots of really quiet, long moments, like long takes, yeah. where a character hears a noise on the other side of the room. So they walk across the room very quietly and very slowly. Yeah. And it would take them about two minutes to cross the room. And they do this repeatedly. And I think if you do that once, it creates tension. But they do it several times. And it starts to make things drag a bit after the third and fourth time that they're walking across the room really slowly and quietly. It gets, yeah, it gets exacerbated the, with repetition. It's true. It's also the, because the first half of the movie, we know that most of these scares are fake. Are fake. It's too early in the movie for the, you know, real stakes to be ramping up yet. So uh, we know a lot of the times when we're supposed to, we're being, quote, fooled, we're not fooled. Yeah. And that's important. Until, until things start being real, it almost feels like a Scooby-Doo movie yeah. for a little while. <laughs> it was, uh... I also... I, I mean... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I wanted to say that of the three movies, they're the, the most interesting one to me because it felt like... I don't know, almost a subplot that's been needed in the slasher movies was the guy who actually managed to get out. And he, that, that was different. Right? He got out, because he, he went out. He went to the police, he begged them for help, and they just dismissed him as a drunken college kid pulling a prank. And uh, yeah, he's supposed to get the police involved in this in this initiation or whatever college bullshit's going on. And they dismiss him. And again, in another movie, he would have just thrown up his hands and given up. But the dude comes back and he shoots the lock out of the gate and he almost gets killed climbing over the gate. <laughs> like that whole odyssey of that guy going to get help and then coming back to try and help himself was maybe the only thing in this movie that felt original to me. Yeah, it was surprising, and he actually comes back. That was different. Yeah. And, you know, it comes back to uh, almost save the day. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to... I mean, I, obviously, I liked Linda Blair in it a bit more than you did. I didn't really find anything to nitpick about her, but um, at the same time, I guess I don't want to over oversell it. But, right. Um, at the same time, I don't really want to talk shit about it either because it's it feels like it's kind of a, a nice gem from from the early 80s. Um, it's an 80s movie made in the 80s takes place in the 80s but feels sort of like a, a gothic period it's, it's kind of cool but it's, it, if we were doing a ranking it'd probably land somewhere in the middle for me I think right right well and again I don't I don't mean to like it's easy for me to pull the threads these are the things that don't work for me part of the, my appeal for Hell Knight was this is a movie that I'd heard of for a really long time that I've been aware of since I was a kid, but they didn't have it at my video store in, in small town Beaumont where I grew up. And, uh, I just never had seen it. It was one of these like stalwart eighties slasher movies that had slipped through the net. And, uh, I enjoyed it just because it was a new one. I recently did a review of the initiation, which I had a similar response to. I might've liked the initiation more than it was worth just because it was a new kind of entry into the form. I might actually argue that hell Knight is probably a, 
a more solidly put together movie than the initiation was, but it didn't catch me as uh, off guard as the initiation did. So uh, I just sort of felt like I was being put through the paces. I enjoyed it because I enjoy these types of movies, but it'd be hard to get enthusiastic about it. But I certainly don't want to talk anyone out of it. I would say if you like 80s slasher movies, definitely Hell Night's worth your time. And the one thing that always stood out to me was the cover. Yeah. Going back to the, the VHS age. And even with the, uh, the Blu-ray, same thing. But uh, it's always just one of those covers that stood out to me. And just looking at it, saying, oh, what is this movie about? It's Hell Night. Jeez. <laughs> For a long time, I remember I was not allowed to rent it because of the, the title and, and the cover. When I was young, what it looked like. It just looked like this terrifying film with the Linda Blair holding this gate and... Uh, hands reaching up to get her from the bottom and I love how much of an obstacle that gate really is in the movie too. Yeah, it's <laughs> scarier than the, than the killers and uh, and that is another twist that they actually had there was at least two uh, killers in in the movie and that was kind of a, a surprise unless you're listening to this podcast and the whole finale I think is is well done uh, her her getaway yeah or you know, and you know the final scene um, for that kind of thing. I think it's done pretty strong. Yeah. I'm not really sure what to say. I mean, uh, I like the film. Uh, I'll watch it again. <laughs> but it's kind of for us, right? It's right in our like absolute niche. Yeah, it, it fits the mood. Yeah. Bigfoot, if so, is he friend or foe? Bigfoot is obviously real. <laughs> okay. And that's based on just it being obvious that he's real. That's it. That's all that's And friend or, foe, friend or foe, I believe he would be a mixture. Uh, I'd say he's probably more like a reclusive bear that would rather be left alone, but uh, uh, if it felt threatened or if it felt like maybe it needed to attack you, it would. But I believe... He just wants to be left with his own. Okay. Well, uh, I read but this. But obvi- obviously it's real. He, obviously, clearly, unquestionably, absolutely yeah. true. Okay. Um, I just read this book by Max Brooks, the guy who did World War Z. Uh, son of Mel Brooks, funnily enough. Uh, it's called Devolution, and it's about a bi- bunch of Bigfoots and a natural disaster driving them to starvation and attacking people. A bunch of Bigfoots. <laughs> or Sasquatch? What would you like? What's the... What's the, what's the no, I, just think it's, I just wonder if that's offensive to Bigfoot. Bigfoot. Like, in, in 2021, should we be calling them that anymore? Yeah, let's like, cancel dude, me. Let's I, cancel. I also have big arms and a big shoulder and a big head. Dude, just I... just on my big feet. I guarantee you I've said some shit on the podcast. It has my ass so fucking in the fire. <laughs> Whatever. I'm over it. 
I, I, we, we cannot turn the world into high school, okay? We can't just judge everybody for the stupidest thing that came out of their mouth. Um, I'm just waiting for... You're just waiting. Just waiting for someone, just for someone to get in trouble for referring to them Bigfoot. We can't call them Bigfoot anymore. No. It's, it's pretty insensitive. It's disrespectful, and Sasquatch yeah. is kind of cultural <laughs> appropriation. <laughs> just call them presumed subhuman. Way back in episode fifty of Rankin Review. I did an episode about Bigfoot with my good friend Brendan Cook. Uh, It's worth revisiting. I think it's a high-quality episode. Um, And I said then that I am fascinated with Bigfoot. I've always been fascinated with Bigfoot. But I don't believe in Bigfoot. I am not a believer. I'm a want-to-be believer. Like a television show from my childhood, The the X-Files. You know... (laughs) I want to believe. I would love to be wrong about Bigfoot. But it seems like a lot of other things need to fall into place for Bigfoot to exist. Like, in order for a population of large mammal, ape creatures to live in even the remotest regions of Canada or Russia or wherever and not be encountered by us in any conclusive physical way ever is tough and to then otherwise go well they only get seen when they want to be seen or they travel by portals or they're supernatural or they're that's kicking down a whole other set of doors you know that's when you're not there's there's asking me if I believe in Bigfoot and then there's asking me if I believe in wholesale the supernatural um I want to believe in Bigfoot. I just don't believe in the supernatural. But I love playing in that sort of fun, imaginary arena. I like a world where supernatural things exist. I kind of want a world where Bigfoot exists. I, I, I think that's part of my love of cinema and escapist media of all sorts. You know, is like... Who wouldn't love to call a cab and have... Like some Fozzie Bear Muppet be your cab driver. And wouldn't that be a great conversation to have on your way to wherever you're going instead of the regular chatter? (laughs) I want the world to be more than it seems to be or that it presents to be. And that's part of the escapist nature of, you know, cinema. Or in the case of what I would like to start talking about here, Max Brooks' novel, Devolution. And, uh... This book definitely believes in Bigfoot and that it treats it like a very serious document. We have diary entries from a survivor of a small community that was sieged by big Bigfoot creatures, Sasquatches, whatever you want to call them, after a natural disaster takes place that uh, ends up moving a large portion of the animals out of their regular terrain and some of them starving some of them, you know, desperate. Um, yeah, it's sort of a collision, a classic collision of man versus nature from the author of World War Z. I've told the story before. I'm going to tell it again because it's worth telling. A dear friend of mine, friend of the show, she's been on a couple of episodes, Dorian. Uh, she was at a Comic-Con and she met Max Brooks and she bought a copy, her own copy, of World War Z. And he asked her, 
where she got the book or how she'd heard about the book. She'd mentioned that she'd babysat for me and that uh, I'd recommended she read the book and that she had, la la la. The man gave her a poster and signed it and asked her to give it to me. And Dorian, being the sweetheart that she is, delivered. So ever since that happened, I've decided I am absolutely a supporter of Max Brooks. I mean, I'd read his zombie survival guide and World War Z because of who I am. But would I have continued forward with his books if they weren't zombie related, if not for that little story? I think this Bigfoot book might have caught my eye anyway, but right now I just consider myself a supporter of all things Max Brooks. He just seems like a cool guy. And it was easy to paint this picture of my head back when I was first reading his his graphic novels and uh, World War Z. You know, this is the son of Mel Brooks. He's got to be this grown up, you know, spoiled Hollywood kid who gets to do whatever he wants. And it's going to be successful because of just the charmed position that he found himself in. Uh, and so he gets to write about zombies and hooray. But this is a whole side project to a very fascinating life that this man is living. And uh, he seems to genuinely be warm and uh, respectful and uh, appreciative of his fans. So I, I have a lot of respect. I say all this and I haven't met the man. But let's get into devolution. From the dust jacket of my hardcover edition of Devolution, the account of the Rainier Sasquatch Massacre. As the ash and chaos from Mount Rainier's eruption swirled and finally settled, the story of the Greenwood Massacre has passed unnoticed, unexamined, until now. The journals of resident Kate Hollins, recovered from the town's bloody wreckage, capture a tale of too harrowing and too earth-shattering and its implications to be forgotten. In these pages, Max Brooks brings Kate's extraordinary account to light for the first time, faithfully reproducing her words alongside his own extensive investigations into the massacre and the legendary beasts behind it. Kate's is a tale of unexpected strength and resilience of, human, of humanity's defiance in the face of a terrible predator's gaze, and inevitably, of savagery and death. Yet it's also more than that, because if what Kate Holland saw in those days was real, then we must accept the impossible. We must accept that the creature known as Bigfoot walks among us, and that it is a beast of terrible strength and ferocity. Part survival narrative, part bloody horror tale, part scientific journey into the boundaries between truth and fiction, this is a Bigfoot story only as Max Brooke could chronicle it unlike none you've ever read before. The book is told as like an investigative journalistic sort of approach of uh, an actual natural disaster. Mount Rainier erupted and the fallout caused a lot of major arteries to be shut down, covered in uh, dirt and sort of lava and destructive debris that was very hot to get hard and muddy to get through and was slowly freezing into a shell of concrete or, or sort of solidifying, not freezing. Um, and, you know, evacuations, tr trying to, you know, get people who are trapped, find people who are missing, uh, all sorts of uh, things to deal with as any major catastrophe, you know, would be. And this tiny, relatively new community that's very eco-friendly, very modern, and sort of uh, an, an idea of like 
the eco-friendly community of the future has settled deep in the woods and is kind of forgotten about in midst of the chaos. They are completely cut off. We know the story of what's happened there because after the ruin of the 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 areas found, all the burnt out cabins, uh, a journal from this woman, Kate Holland, is found. And we follow her from her first moving in to the community, getting to know her neighbors, a lot of whom are kind of unpleasant portraits of very snooty, intellectually rich, you know, loving the smell of their own farts sort of people that are communing with nature. But, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of wealthy snobs and they're, they're you know, they're, their privilege is very evident. And um, some of them are there for the right reasons, some of them are there for the wrong reasons. But um, and she's got a troubled relationship with her with her boyfriend, who's uh, had to deal with a lot of personal failures and is clearly depressed and kind of dr- not really dried kicking and streaming. But he just doesn't have any personality or, or ability or animus left in him. And as a result, she feels lonely here, and she bonds with uh, very few of her neighbors. Um, at least initially. But once they realize they're cut off, the movie becomes, or the movie, sorry, the novel becomes a, sort of a, a kind of condemnation of a lot of these people. Their survival ability is very, very minimal. They're very lucky for the handful of people that are capable that live there. And most are this, this one woman who's sort of a, a veteran of other catastrophes and has a really... A, heavy past that the book slowly reveals to us um she knows she she sniffs the catastrophe in the air she doesn't know that bigfoot's coming but she knows that they may be cut off for longer than they realize and that their little perfect easy living utopia dries up real quick when you know the delivery vans with supplies don't you know come in regularly and yeah then they start noticing that the animals passing through are impossibly skinny and and fragile and desperate and you know they're they're seeing signs that like some sort of sort of natural apocalypse has happened in the ecosystem and it's definitely affected the animals behavior and they soon find out that the animals include sasquatch these Bigfoot come across this little community of people completely cut off and in their desperate, on-the-move sort of pack-hunting need for survival, they see it as a potential food source. And they first sort of try and stay in the area and sniff it out and see how real this is and you can sort of feel things escalating. And all of this is covered in the diary. We also have Max Brooks, the author, interviewing, you know, some of the people who are dealing with the actual fallout of the Rainier eruption. So, like, why they didn't get to the people right away. And different people studying about Sasquatches and stuff like that. Why, why, you know, maybe help to make the case of why this is a more credible thing than maybe it sounds. He's really trying to ground the narrative in the real world. And uh, that what sort of makes it really pleasant. If I have a complaint, I guess it's that, like, as far as the action and the meat and potatoes of the visceral confrontation and the horror, it's 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 sort of a slow burn to get to that. But a lot of my favorite horror novels I've noticed are that way. Even, say, Stephen King's most notorious novel, Pet Cemetery, is really the the last third of the book is where everything bad really fully happens. 
But uh, like that book, this movie, you know right away that it's going to lead to a tragedy and uh, you, you sort of feel all these dominoes being set and slowly starting to fall. And when the shit hits the fan, it is quite the story. It is quite horrifying. This is not Harry and the Hendersons Bigfoot. These are these are terrifying, aggressive animals. And uh, they're smart, but not necessarily smarter than us. And if these people can, you know, get together, maybe they can stick it out. So it's a fascinating, quick uh, read and there's also actually an audiobook version of it that's full of really interesting actors and Jeff Daniels and Nathan Fillion and uh, Judy Greer are, are all supplying voices in it. Um, he also did similar with World War Z. It's a really interesting audio version of that. Um, so, you know, if you want to if you want to have that audio experience, that's another way to enjoy the book. But I think it's great time. I think it's fun. Um, I don't think it. It didn't necessarily make me stay up at night, but it definitely had some really good wowses, shocking sort of violent moments, and it's uh, it's kind of refreshingly grisly in its approach to Bigfoot. It's some, so much of the Bigfoot fiction that I've read, you know, they're, they're they're kind of a little cuddlier, you know. Not in this book. This book wants to be vicious. Uh, I guess the movie rights for the book have been optioned, so my guess is that we're going to be seeing a film version of it in the next few years, and I can't wait i can't wait but i can't recommend the book enough it's it's a ton of fun also interstitially with like all of the different chapters and the interview segments and the diary entries there's great little excerpts from other books and studies and scientific sort of historic interest items having to do with sasquatch little little bite-sized things and all of them i found quite fascinating At first, Bowman could see nobody, nor did he receive an answer to his call. Stepping forward, he again shouted, and as he did, so his eye fell on the body of his friend, stretched beside the trunk of a great fallen spruce. Rushing towards it, horrified, the trapper found the body was still warm, but that the neck was broken, while there were four great fang marks in his throat. The footprints of the unknown beast creature, printed deep in the soft soil, told the whole story. The unfortunate man, having finished his packing, had sat down on the spruce log with his face to the fire and his back to the dense woods to wait for his companion. While thus waiting, this monstrous assailant, which must have been lurking nearby in the woods, waiting for a chance to catch one of the adventurers unprepared, came silently up from behind, walking with long, noiseless steps and seemingly still on two legs. Evidently unheard, it reached the man and broke his neck by wrenching his head back with his forepaws while it buried its teeth in his throat. It had not eaten the body, but apparently had romped and gambled around in an uncouth, ferocious glee, occasionally rolling over and over it, and then had fled back into the soundless depths of the woods. President Theodore Roosevelt, the Wilderness Hunter This is the forest 
where the devil landed when he was cast out of heaven. And at that spot, we'll find the entrance to hell. The Antrim. The deeper we dig, the more the forest around us becomes darker. And with each layer that we pass, deeper in hell we'll be. So speaking of all things uncertain and all things believed in but not known, you know, Bigfoot does not exist, I don't particularly think. Ghosts do not exist, I'm sorry, but I don't think angels as we imagine them exist. But we love the idea that they exist. I mean, name a summer camp or a theater or a drama department that doesn't come with a ghost story or ghost sightings, or a few years ago so-and-so saw that. Our willingness to buy into something has a lot to do with our desire to buy into something. I think that's why like 15% of the population refuses to get a needle during a global pandemic. Because for some reason, they like the idea that they're smarter than every scientist and every <laughs> medical practitioner in the world. We don't believe things because they're true. We believe things because we want to believe them. And I think that's the conceit in Antrim that is so romantic, for lack of a better word. Antrim, the most terrifying or dangerous film ever made, is made by a couple of Canadian filmmakers named David Amito and Michael Lacini, and I really hope I'm saying their names right. <laughs> and I guess, Maybe it's a little bit unfair to say that the concept, the idea, the sort of base premise of this movie is so strong that I give it a recommend and a positive review almost on the basis of that more than some of the bells and whistles and approach taken to it. The idea is that this film, Antrim, has been rediscovered by these filmmakers and we are getting to see it for the first time since all sorts of this terrible history. Festival people who had been uh, privy to the film because of it being submitted ended up getting sick or dying. An entire theater burnt down that, that during a screening of it, apparently in 1988. And they build this whole rich history of the movie before they screen the movie. And uh, I don't know, I like that they're sort of building in this sort of dense history to their movie. It reminds me of the promotion that went into the Blair Witch Project. For months before that movie came out, they seeded the airwaves and like all of the nerd play spheres, you know, with lore of the Blair Witch. So before we see the film, we are presented with sort of faux documentary presentation of this is the lore of Antrim. This is the thing that you have to prepare yourself to see. In fact, they actually go hilariously so far as to show a warning up on the screen. And you're supposed to, you know, rate it in and take it seriously. 
before you watch Antrim, understand that you're taking a risk and that the producers are not responsible for what happens. Legal notice. By continuing to watch this film, you agree that the producers of this film have made you aware of the history and dangers associated with Antrim. The producers, distributors, cast, crew, unions, and theater management on all levels are released of all liability for any event that occurs to you during or after your screen, including but not limited to illness, injury, mortal danger, or death. If you disagree in any way with this notice, you must leave the theater now. I love the conceit. I love the idea. I love that the film Antrim was supposedly made in the late 70s, but its origin is kind of vague. I like that they know that the sound and the image has been messed with, but they're showing us the print as they have found it, and we have to sort of put it together ourselves. I guess the problem, if there is a problem beyond the, like I say, initial intriguing setup of the movie, is the movie itself. Uh, we have the story of a, a woman and a little boy basically in the woods, and she's instructing them to do this weird ritual. And they seem to be actually attempting to make a portal or actually literally dig their way to hell. Why this is happening and the ins and outs of that is very slowly revealed, but this is a movie you experience that you, you don't necessarily understand. I think like a modern authentic equivalent to what they are attempting with the faux film is uh, this movie Begotten by E. Elias Merhinge. Merhinge. Um, it's like totally art fuck, uh, bizarre disturbing imageries with almost no story to go with it. And for some reason it, it, it sort of amassed a bunch of fascinated followers who I think saw more to the movie than in my personal opinion was actually there. But it, it's really rough, it looks really cheap, it looks really, like, on one hand, amateur, but you can see focus put into it, like, whoever was making it had a vision, and they were bringing that vision forth, well, bringing that vision forth, no matter how jittery or flawed it might be. And sure enough, in the film that we do see, they've gone a lot of ways to add grain and jitter and, and hair and damage to the film and weird jump cuts. And obviously they have, like, satanic imagery pop up and blip up on the screen here and there. But to my measure, I think they might have overplayed their hand on that end of the production. We get that it's a rickety old projector. We get why the color grade is different, why the images look softer. And we absolutely forgive it and go with it. But I think in their effort to make it look as old and beat up and rickety as possible they may have overplayed it i think generally speaking where the film sort of has its missteps is when they just put a little bit too much gas in the tank for instance in the in the documentary portion of the film the narrator i think there's something about the way it's it's very authentic to the kind of cheesy narration that we would get in these true crime or quote unquote true haunting documentaries that you see but there's something where the narrator is trying to make the story sound more sinister when the story all by itself is purely sinister enough, you know? You're telling us names and dates of, police, of people who saw the movie and who subsequently died within 24, 48 hours and bringing up this sort of large stack of evidence as to why the movie is supposedly cursed. I think maybe I was so interested in the fake documentary part of the movie that when the actual film stopped or started, I felt like I was 
kind of disappointed. Like I wanted more about the film than I wanted to see the film itself. And even though it's just a mini movie within the whatever 95 minutes, the movie itself probably maybe takes up 75 of the 95 minutes. <laughs> I guess I'm minimally intrigued by like, why are these people doing what they're doing and what's this gonna lead up to? But it's not about the story, it's about the experience. It's about priming you to be scared and then putting this film in front of you. It's not necessarily truly a found footage movie in that way, it's much closer to a faux documentary, but it, it functions in the same way a found footage movie will in that it's trying to sell you that this is all very real and it's trying to make you use your own fears, your own psychology against yourself. So if the movie's not scary enough, you will make it scary enough. And I think a case could be made that they're over relying on their audience to do that work for them. But this is just one man's opinion. The movie brings to mind a few other films too. They actually, to their credit, mention themselves Ringu and Cigarette Burns from John Carpenter, which are about films that if you watch could potentially kill you. And I recently saw a French faux documentary called, I believe, Fury of the Demon on a similar uh, subject. Also sort of, they're only faking their way through it. Within the film itself, they have all these chapters. I don't know if it's supposed to represent them getting closer to the climax or closer to the pits of hell. There's just a couple of scenes where like, we see a dark hand turning the page or they bring us back to that book, they show the book. And this is unfair on the movie, but it's just true. It reminded me of Monty Python and the Holy Grail where we would cut to the pages of the book and in one, one shot, for whatever reason, a gorilla turns the page of the book. and. All of a sudden, it introduced this absurdity, or it reminded me of absurdity, which started some dominoes falling, which, you know, sort of <laughs> laid bare the absurdity of the entire movie. I love the ideas, the ambition, more than I love the execution, but I love the ideas and ambition so much that I'm absolutely going to recommend the movie. They, they, they go on to ideas such as auditory illusions or auditory hallucinations. It can be brought about by subsonic frequencies and there's reality to that but I think more so than there there's there's more and less to it than they're letting on and I don't know it's just if art can heal or be used as a power to cheer someone up or bring them out of a dark spot or distract them from their problems what what's wrong with the idea that it wouldn't be able to hurt somebody wouldn't be able to be used as a psychologically damaging tool if someone focused their will and their education and their ability to make a film to do nothing but that some argue that's how adam sandler makes his career one by one we pray to thee one by one we pray to thee protect us from all we'll see protect us from all we'll see from all we'll hear and touch and smell. From all we'll hear and touch and smell. From all the unknown dark in hell. From all the unknown dark in hell. Together now. One by one we pray to thee. Protect us from all we'll see. From all we'll hear and touch and smell. From all the unknown dark in hell. One by one we pray to thee. Protect us from all we'll see. From all we'll hear and touch and smell, from all the unknown dark in hell. One by one we pray to thee, protect us from all we'll see, from all we'll hear and touch and smell, from all the unknown dark in hell.
One by one we pray to thee, protect us from all we'll see, from all we'll hear and touch and smell, from all the unknown dark in hell. It's just interesting. This is not a nostalgic movie. It's not a retro movie, but it's something new from that idea. It's something made new out of something that was old. And I respect it. I wanted to be a low-budget filmmaker. I have made a micro-budget film. And some of the biggest things is to have a big idea that doesn't require a big budget. And this was one of those. And I don't mean to be saying that it wasn't successful. <sighs> that it wasn't successful, I do think it mostly was. But I think that if it had narrowed its view or even maybe just focused on being the faux documentary and showed us clips from the movie instead of the movie in its entirety, they really could have... There's, a, there's another cut of all of this stuff that is perfect. This is intriguing. It'll leave you thinking. It'll, you know, stick in your craw a little bit. And especially if you love old 80s and 70s sort of micro-budget films that have that grungy quality to them. They're definitely loyal to that. But the movie just sparks your imagination. And if this, you know, maybe there's a better cut somewhere in my mind, there's a lot of movies like that. I have such respect for these guys getting this movie made, and I hope this kicks down some doors for them. You know, step one, make your movie. Step two, and as I've learned, maybe the harder step, finding people to watch it. I watched Antrim and I liked it, and I think you should watch Antrim as well. She was in a car accident like a year ago, before we worked here. I'd love it if my boyfriend tried to kill himself because I died. Has anyone ever told you you were a really weird little girl? You won't be able to fix it, Molly. You're dead. I don't know if it's just the generation I was a part of, or maybe it's just the people I grew up around, but I must confess that from a young age, I've been a very uptight person when it came to sexuality. There's all sorts of guilt charged around it. Like, obviously, I saw the appeal of ladies, of, you know, I was attracted to it, but the idea of recognizing that, of looking at that, of quote-unquote gawking, or, you know, <clears throat> recognizing the physical beauty of uh, a woman instead of, you know, the full package. Uh, a lot of guilt was sort of wrapped up in that for me. And uh, I guess it's stuck around for a really long time because I look at movies that are overly sexualized, especially in my post-adolescence, with a, a little bit of I don't know, the same measure of disdain that a lot of people will treat with slasher movies. <laughs> is that a really completely necessary? And the short answer to that question, as far as I'm concerned, is yes. If we're going to, you know, study this bizarre experience that is existence, that is being a living human person, enduring the experience of life, sex is a big part of that. 
and to pretend that that doesn't exist, to not let that card be played because it makes some people uncomfortable, is silly. Case in point for this uh, a comic book series that I could have been into for a good decade already that because the covers threw me off I ignored is called Hack and Slash. And it's got this like crazily sexualized, scantily clad woman on the cover of every issue. And it's selling you this thing. It's selling you this issue of, or this image of what it is inside the issue. And uh, it's not that at all. It's actually much smarter and much more horror savvy and really knows its audience. It knows that its audience likes the horror conventions, including the sexuality, and uses it to its benefit. And if I didn't have my own personal misgivings and hang-ups, maybe I wouldn't be so judgmental about it. Maybe I would have found it sooner. By the way, if you haven't read Hack and Slash, please do. And feel no guilt, feel no shame. This goes on to the movies, too. I mean, there was a movie called The Devil's Rock, which had a really cheesy cover, and I ended up getting it just on a lark because I needed, you know, five movies for $25 or whatever the deal was I was getting. That just filled the space for me, and who knows, maybe it will overperform. And you know what? It really did. It wasn't necessarily false advertising, but it wasn't what I thought it would be either. Which brings us to Nina Forever. Here is a horror comedy, satire, I don't know what you would call it, romance, dramedy. It's all over the place. But um, it opens on a man so damaged by the loss of his beloved that she's, she's died before the movie started, that he's attempted suicide. That's where we start. This is the power that Nina had over him, that he seems to not be able to live without her. Is that healthy? Is that the way any person should be? I think, like, the obvious answer to that is, well, no. But I think that everybody's been in a place where they've had their heart broken, and they know what that feels like. They know how hard it is to get over something when you've invested so much into it. So Holly, who works with this young man, uh, Rob is the character's name, um, works with them at a grocery store while she's training to become a medic. She gets this hopeless crush on him. And honestly, the suicide, the tragic romance, the fact that he is living in mourning is strangely part of the attraction for Nina. And she finally wears him down, gets his attention, finds her way into his apartment, into his arms, and into his bed. And that's when things get really complicated. Nina manifests as the broken, bloody corpse from the car accident that killed her in bed with them. Manifests physically broken, bloody, naked around them. And it's not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time visitation. Anytime these people get physically intimate, Nina manifests and says horrible things, both to Holly and Rob, and seems to want to continue the relationship, but she doesn't have anything to offer. She keeps saying that she's dead and that, that that's inevitable and that she has nothing more to play, and yet she keeps on playing. She keeps on messing with their relationship. And no matter what they do, which includes dark things like making love on her gravestone, uh, they can't shake Nina. Naked, you could pass for 16. You're not old. No. 
I'm dead. If I was just his old girlfriend, then I could see why you get your frothy little hopes up, but... Come on. That first morning, when I was naked in the sunshine by the window. Pushing his hands into the sand as we fucked on the beach in Cornwall. By the time I went down on him on the sofa in my parents' front room just before we met them for the first time. These things will stay in his head precisely because I am dead. Your oil painting is still wet. Any good memories you slather out will just get mushed in by what happens next. I am the next. Lena. Holly's my girlfriend now. I don't know how we're going to deal with this situation. That's just how it is. No, it isn't. We never broke up. You died. Couldn't. Did you want to? No. Well, then. I'm breaking up with you now. You can't. What do you mean? Why not? Because I'm dead. A lot of compliments have to go to Fiona O'Shaughnessy, who plays Nina, Abigail Hardingham, who plays Holly, and Cian Barry, who plays Rob, because these are incredibly brave performances from incredibly bold actors. They are naked a lot of the time. They are covered in blood a lot of the time. It could not have been a comfortable thing to shoot being on set. They're not alone. They're surrounded by other people. But what I respect so much about Nina Forever is what a psychologically dense piece it is and how a movie that you could look at and say, ooh, kinky sex and violence, a zombie sex movie, la 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 la. It's not. It's about grief. It's about mourning. It's about Rob dealing not only with Nina, but with her family, who he still has attachments to, and how that's a good thing for them and their grief, but maybe not helping him. His dealing with the fact that even in death, his ex-girlfriend can't let go of her, even when he was right about ready to let go of her himself. Like, she won't let him go, but he was trying so hard to let her go. But even more interesting is that Abby, or Abigail, she has her own issues and her own cards to play. Pardon me, Holly's the character's name. Abigail is the actress's name. Sorry, you guys. Um, Holly's problem is that she's as hung up about the Nina thing as as Rob was. Because she was part of the attraction. She was the whole reason that she originally hooked up with this guy. This romantic, this deep, passionate love that he had that she kind of wanted from him, that she wanted to harness, whether it was a conscious thing or not. His brokenness, his misery, was the appeal. And... Nina's not going to let that misery end. But interestingly, as the story progresses, it's not necessarily Rob's misery that she won't let end. It's actually Nina's. As Nina tries to seek other partners, pardon me, as Holly tries to seek out other partners, Nina continues to manifest even though this has nothing to do with her ex-boyfriend anymore. Even though, you know, he's not even present. 
She didn't have the pre-existing relationship with Nina, but Nina is haunting her as much or arguably more than her ex-boyfriend, or boyfriend as she considers herself. I think that there's a shot, not really mentioned, but since we see so much skin on all of the actors, we notice that uh, Ben has this tattoo on his back, which says the title of the movie, Nina Forever. And we see that she notices it too, that, that, uh, that Holly recognizes that, and that that's almost like a stamp of property that Nina has on him, and that she is envious of. So there's a lot going on in this movie that... You know, you wouldn't necessarily see immediately just looking at the case. And frustratingly, it's really a hard movie to put your hands to, at least in Canada. I don't know if there's a streaming service or somewhere that has it, but me being a collector of the physical medium, I can find it in their region if I want to overpay for it, but I've never been able to find a copy of it here. And I saw the movie, and I really liked it, and I wanted to spread the word on it, and frustrating. Is it perfect? Well, if I had some complaints about the movie, it would be when it's not saying something interesting, when it doesn't have a big plot point scene or a really character-driven scene, it seems to forget script a little bit and it over-relies on so-so pop songs and montages to show us time going by of them walking, contemplating, trying to deal with it. They didn't find any dialogue or any sort of quiet way to show us this. And they kind of repeat that trick over and over again. But in between the montage of pop music that you may or may not like, there are, again, very honest, frank psychological discussions and very quite graphic, intensely sexual <laughs> situations that envelop. Out of desperation, they even try to include her in the sex. And, like, I don't know if I'm visualizing this for you, but, like, Nina's bloody. It's gory. So they're getting blood smeared all over them, they're rolling around in the bed, and they're still trying to make it work. What scenario will present itself to the human being who's in love that will stop them from trying to make it work? This movie is deep, it's smart, and it is erotic, and it is disturbing, and it is criminally underseen. Check it out. Isabella Johnny, the internationally acclaimed actress in her most explosive, controversial role. <laughs> Sam Neill, Heinz Bennett, two men, and a woman no man could ever possess. Special visual effects by Academy Award winner Carlo Rambaldi. Mortal terror. Inhuman ecstasy. Soon you will know the meaning of possession. It wasn't even human. Intentionally or not, I may be curating as a podcast host this reputation of a little bit of snobbishness when it comes to certain elements of horror movies. It's weird because whereas I will make all sorts of excuses for a slasher movie or a slasher sequel or a no-budget monster movie, 
I'm really prickly when it comes to things like, uh, well, for instance, David Lynch. More often than not, I end up frustrated by a David Lynch movie. Instead of leaving me in a place of awe and wonder, I feel frustrated and kind of angry sometimes. Whereas, as I've said before in the podcast, I don't have to understand everything about your film. I don't have to have it all figured out. But I have to believe that you do. I was hard on the most recent Charlie Kaufman movie. Even though I liked it, I, I kind of picked on it a little bit. Especially if you're going to be all abstract and weird and stuff, it seems a strange choice to adapt someone else's work only to willfully fuck with it. I mean, honor the original work, right? To some degree. And maybe a case can be made that he did that. I haven't read the source material. Later on in this season of Rankin Review, there's going to be an episode all about art horror. And there's some selections in there that I will talk nicely about and some that I won't. But I want to sort of try and shake this reputation that I don't like an artistic horror movie or that I dismiss it as pretentious. The best evidence of this is this movie I want to talk about right now called Possession from 1981. To my mind, the movie Possession is everything that the Lars von Trier piece of shit Antichrist was trying to be. Only in every way that that movie failed and offended, this movie succeeds and sort of stimulates the brain. Like, I don't understand everything that happens in Possession, but I'm wrestling with it, and I'm wrestling with it for a long time. And to say that the movie is ahead of its time would be I think a crazy understatement. But it's a hard movie to break down. Like, if I try to tell you the plot right now, like, it's a very European movie. It's set somewhere European. <laughs> this woman has been alone for a long time. Her husband's been away at the wars, so to speak. He's actually like a spy, but he's been away, and she's been home, and she's been lonely, and there's all sorts of questions being posed, like, this was the life that she wanted, but now that she had it, she didn't enjoy it. She should be happy that her husband is home, but it's only punctuating that she's been sitting around waiting for a life that she didn't really want. The conflict, the, the friction, and the divorce that's going to be coming between these two people, and the serious psychological and emotional damage that's done to both of them, how it turns both of them into monsters and makes both of them kind of create monsters within themselves or in some aspects of the film literally creating a monster this weird squid-like Lovecraftian creation but what does it all mean you know were they destined to be together and that's their personal hell were they desperate destined to be apart and that was their personal hell what does it say about relationships Sam Neill, the, the, the male member of this relationship, he's got all this passion, this intense love and need for his wife, but he's also got this anger in him, this, this meanness and this need to inflict it upon her. And she has become so disgusted with him that she actually enjoys hurting him and admits as much. Is this all coming from her, or is there something else? Is, is she being possessed by madness, or are they possessing each other? What does the title of the movie, Possession, mean? And uh, I don't know how you say Isabel Adjani. Adjani is the name of the actress. She gives an amazingly 
fragile and yet strong, terrifying and yet, <laughs> I don't know, bold and uh, she's she's falling apart, but she is she's clinging to her humanity such as it is as best as she can and the over-the-top almost grotesque theatricality of the performances are you know no other movie could house them you know when you really swing for the fences like this and when you set your movie in sort of inside a concept instead of inside of the real world it sort of makes <laughs> everything is on the table that way no performance is necessarily unjustified. Nothing is too big. So we start with this, I guess, a love triangle. She admits that she's been having an affair and that she wants out of the relationship. There's friction between the two men in the relationship, but then there's also the mystery of her, where she's disappearing to, and this creature that she has created, but she has a more than motherly relationship to. It's like a lot of European horror movies, implicitly sexual whenever it can be. She hates her husband, but she's still connected with her husband. She hates her husband, and yet the creature that she creates ends up taking the shape and form of her husband. She is disgusted and, and, and crazed with what's happening to her, and yet she will kill people to defend the life that she has chosen and the path that she is on. Like, what do we do to each other? Like, falling in love is this big romantic thing, but when you are really all in, when you invest heart and soul into somebody and it doesn't work, what becomes of you? And I talk about all of this and I haven't even gotten to the absolutely crazy, crazy finale of the movie. And a lot of times, like, I, I warn of spoilers. Everyone knows to listen to the show, I give spoilers. I don't even know if this movie can be spoiled, because it's not how it ends, it's what the ending means. There ends up being a couple of murders have taken place, and the couple are sort of having one final conflict, and the husband meets this doppelganger creature that has been, I guess, maybe created, either manifest in reality or just in her mind, but other people seem to be able to see it. Anyway. They're gunned down by the police. They've, the police have been called to a terrible fight or violence that's taking place. And our two main characters are riddled with bullets, but the creature, the creation, seems unmoved, un, un, untouched by the bullets. And the female character, she ends up killing herself, strangely, by shooting herself in the back. And the husband ends up falling or jumping or committing suicide. And as the credits roll and this creature that they've created out of the death of their love is free to roam the world, one wonders, what did all of this mean? There's an absolutely famous sequence with the young woman, Johnny walking through a tunnel in a subway station and having an absolutely traumatizing, terrorizing flip out. She smashes her groceries against the wall, milk and eggs spill everywhere. And these fluids, these milky fluids, start falling out of her, all of her orifices, and she makes this writhing, horrendous mess. The courage of that performance and the conviction of the storytelling, and yet, as I stand here enthusiastically telling you about it, I don't know what all of it means. I know that it's fascinating. 
I know that the director was writing a treatise on divorce and uh, how men and women treat each other and uh, sort of the, the deeper, uglier depths of dealing with that kind of depression can be. Everything, as I said, that Lars von Trier was trying to do and failing with Antichrist. Here we see it loud and proud. There are no easy answers. Hell, in this subject, there might not even be any easy questions. But this is a fascinating movie. This, Possession from 1981, is art horror. Will you move in with him or keep the apartment? Keep it if you allow me to. I've decided not to see Bob. At all? At all. I don't want to fuck him up even more by playing Sunday Daddy. Well, where are you to him anyway? Precisely. But he knows you. He's used. He needs your... A real father, full time. Well, I thought I could be coming out from the wars, so to speak. You say it's better with him than with me. I get more out of it. So I'm saying I guess... If you want me to be on side, if you're, you know, the next Nicholas Rendon Refn art fuck horror movie, or the next Lars von Trier art fuck horror movie, or the next David Lynch art fuck horror movie, instead of scene for scene trying to wow the audience with how, you know, <laughs> abstract, opaque, and challenging everything is, find a subject, find a theme, and use your grotesquerie, use your abstractions to explore that theme. It doesn't all have to all fit together perfectly. I just have to believe that you had an intention, a master plan. Otherwise, I, I think I've made this analogy before on the podcast. I feel it's like a kid who went into the fridge and took everything out and put it into a blender, mixed it, and then forced us to drink it. And because it's just a little kid, we just say, oh, that's really good, good for you. Or because we're too ashamed to admit that we don't understand these intense flavors, we just say, wow, that's really different, that's really interesting. Yeah, there's a place for different and there's a place for interesting. But the main job of cinema God damn it, is to entertain. Entertain me, and stimulate my brain, and be smart, and be weird, and be out there. But, for the love of God, at least pretend that you have a point. Possession has reinvigorated my love for art horror, so I'm happy and enthusiastic to talk about it. It was an absolutely painless bunker review, because... There's just not enough and yet too much to say about it, you know? <laughs> Everybody's interpretation will be their own, and that's valid. Whereas in other films, I will say everybody's interpretation will be their own because there's no interpretation to be found. If it means everything, it means nothing. Do you know what I'm saying? So I want movies to mean something, and I want them to entertain. And I don't think that's too much to ask. So to address some business that I probably should have addressed in the introduction, Liz Dexia strikes again. <laughs> I'm sorry you guys, if I was perfect I'd be boring. 
and I'm assuming you don't think of it I'm boring since you've listened this far into the podcast. But the movies and the novel that you just heard review were in order Mr. Frost, Sputnik, Hell Knight, the novel was Devolution by Max Brooks, Antrim, Nina Forever, and Possession. Those were the seven subjects of this fourth bunker episode. And uh, just for the uninitiated, in October of 2020, I watched 31 movies, read three books, and watched the first entire season of the original Twilight Zone, and compiled notes for all of those reviews all at once in order to be able to produce five episodes for my podcast, which I've been having trouble getting recordings done, but having uh, technical audio issues with so <clears throat> this was a noble experiment and the degree of success well I will I will I will ask you guys if I was to rank these movies I know I don't have anyone to rank with but just for shits and giggles I would go in sixth place Hell Knight in fifth Antrim fourth Sputnik third Nina Forever second Mr. Frost a lot of nostalgia involved in that one for me particularly and in first place Possession but I actually did enjoy watching all of the movies and really enjoyed reading that book. So um, you can consider this entire episode's recommendations. See? That was not bad, right? I don't need guests all the time. I can talk to you guys about horror movies. I'm getting more comfortable. I'm getting my game. But I'm always willing to hear feedback, so if you want to tell me how I did this episode of Rank and Review, this particular Bunker episode, am I getting better, am I getting worse? You can do that by writing me at rankandreview at gmail.com. R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankandreview.ca because I am Canadian. Thank you so much for your ears. If you want another show to listen to, I invite you to check out the Shelf Shedding Movie Show or the Terror Table Podcast, a couple of other Saskatoon-based podcasts. And thank you so much for listening. Tell that other movie nerd in your life about the show. That would make you a friend. I mean, you listen to the show, you're already a friend, but you know what I mean. See you in a couple weeks.